Well, just the, uh, the other day, uh, I was going through some old photos uh, of mine, uh, and I stumbled upon this one that I want you all to see. This picture here is from, can you all see it? Circa 1988. I was about six years old in this picture. I'm uh, the cute little guy in the back there. And uh, that's right. I'm, we are playing with the original Nintendo Entertainment System, right? Uh, and if you can see on the screen, this right here is Super Mario Brothers. All right, because I'm only six years old in this picture, I'm not very good at it. I'm really good at the ball right here. <laughs> I played this game a lot. So much so that by the time I was like eight or nine, like, I could beat this game in about like, I don't know, six or seven minutes. It's possible. Um, I got much better as time went on. I don't know if you've ever played the game, and probably you've never played the game on this console, but there is eight worlds, right, with four levels each. Level 8-4 is the final level, and you get there, and there's a fire-breathing, hammer-throwing dragon named Bowser you've got to run under in order to rescue Princess Toadstool, okay? To get to level 8-4, you've got to avoid Goombas and Koopa Troopas and Buzzy Beetles and Bullet Bills and Piranha Plants and, yes, leaping cheap cheeps. <laughs> and you've only got three lives to do it. Okay, you mess up three times, and the game is over. Okay, back to square one, back to level one, one. Okay, video games back then are not like they are now. And I realize I sound old saying that. Right? Video games are not what they used to be. Right? Now you can save your progress. But back then, 1988, you couldn't, right? If you messed up too many times, the game was over. Back to the beginning, back to level 1-1. Well, sadly, what's true of Super Mario Brothers is something that I think we've all experienced uh, in real life. You make too many mistakes, uh, you mess up too many times, and it's game over. Right? The relationships that maybe you're in, they end. Right? The friendship, it falls apart. Mess up too many times, and it's back to square one. And I think our experiences, uh, not just playing Super Mario Brothers, but in life, it, we make, it makes us think that this is the same way that we relate to God as well. Right? Just too many times, and we're back to where we started. What I want you to see tonight is that even when we mess up, and even when we mess up three times, we do not go back to zero. Okay, we do not go back to level one, one. I want you to see tonight that Jesus meets us in our failures. That he saves us. And he saves our progress. When we mess up, it's not game over you see, Jesus meets us in our failures, and he meets us with the intention of restoring us, getting us back in the game, not at the very beginning, but where he last hit save. So don't walk away and don't quit because Jesus hasn't quit, and he's not going to quit on you. I want you to see this tonight. Okay, in this story, John 21 we see the resurrected Jesus showing up and cooking breakfast for seven of his disciples. You know, the disciples in this story are no longer uh, in Jerusalem. 
They're back at the Sea of Tiberias, which is also known as the Sea of Galilee, a place that is very familiar to them. The disciples in the story knew these waters well. They knew them, first of all, as fishermen, and then secondly, as fishers of men. Crisscrossing the sea many times with Jesus, listening to him preach and teach, and watching him work miracles both uh, on land and at sea. You see, they were at the Sea of Galilee, or by the Sea of Galilee, when they watched Jesus five, feed 5,000 men with five loaves and two, uh, two pieces of bread, right, their measly little lunch. They were on the Sea of Galilee when a storm threatened to sink their ship and take them down with it. And when they heard Jesus tell the wind to shut up and the, the waves to sit down and all become calm. You know, a lot happened on the Sea of Galilee and by uh, the Sea of Galilee. So many memories were made there. So much happened here. Which is why to these disciples, the Sea of Galilee was not just a body of water, and it was not just a patch of blue uh, on a paper map. The Sea of Galilee was home. It's where they grew up. It's where their family and their friends still lived. It's where they worked before they knew Jesus, and it's where they worked side by side with Jesus. And the Sea of Galilee is where Jesus meets them, having first appeared to them in that big city of Jerusalem. For Peter, going back to the Sea of Galilee was not just going home. It was going back to where he started, going back to square one. And here's why. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter denied having any connection to Jesus whatsoever. And he did not just do this once, he did it three times. See, when Jesus was arrested and was being interrogated by the high priest, and Peter stood outside and he stood by a charcoal fire warming his hands there. A servant girl of the high priest comes out and she recognizes Peter and she says to him, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. Peter answers her, I don't know nor understand what you mean. I have no clue what you're talking about. Well, the girl goes over to some bystanders and she sort of forms this huddle and she starts pointing at him saying, this man's one of them. Again, Peter denies it, right? I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, the bystanders come up to him. They walk up to Peter and say, certainly you're one of them, right? For you are a Galilean, right? Your accent gives you away. But Peter began to evoke a curse on, a curse on himself and swear, I do not know this man of whom you're speaking, Right? And all at once, right, no sooner had these words left his mouth, a rooster crows, and Peter remembers how Jesus had said to him just hours before, and before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And hearing the rooster crow, Peter leaves the courtyard and he breaks down. And the Bible says he weeps bitterly. See, Peter, who swore that when push comes to shove, he would lay his life down for Jesus, denied him three times. 
And after denying him three times, he watched Jesus, his friend, get nailed to a cross. And he watched him take his last breath on the cross. And then he watched him get pushed into a tomb. But three days later, there's a rumor. And now it's not just a rumor, right? It's a report, right? The news is true. Jesus is alive. Right? He's come back. Right? Christ is risen. And I imagine this is where things get really complicated for Peter. Because on the one hand, he's really excited that Jesus is alive. This is fantastic news. But on the other hand, this accentuates his pain. Because seeing him only reminds him that he has really blown it. I denied him three times. Does he still love me? Like, are we okay? There's no way he's ever going to want to take me back. Not after what I did to him back there. So when the disciples head back to the Sea of Galilee, and he goes with them, Peter's not just going home. Peter's going back to square one. Not as Peter, but as Simon Johnson. Not as a fisher of men, but as a fisherman. We see in the story that Peter has reverted back to an old identity. We see this in verses 15, 16, and 17, where Jesus addresses him as Simon, son of John, a.k.a. Simon Johnson. The only time Peter is referred to his birth name, Simon Johnson, is in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, when Simon meets Jesus for the very first time. In that encounter, Jesus says to him, You are Simon Johnson, Simon son of John, but you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And that's, that's going to be your name. The first thing that Jesus does for him is to give him a new name and a new identity. And for 20 chapters, from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 21, this is how he is addressed, as Peter. That is to say, for 20 chapters, Simon Johnson is living out of his God-given identity. Until now. Until now. The question is why. Well, the only answer that makes any sense is that Peter no longer sees himself that way. He no longer sees himself as Cephas. I'm not a rock. I'm a failure. I'm not Peter. I'm Simon Johnson, after all. He thinks he's back at square one. But Peter hasn't just reverted back to an old identity. He's also reverted back to an old way of life. For the first time in a long time, we see Peter doing what he did before he met Jesus. Okay, he's gone fishing, and he's coming up empty. Just as a new day is breaking, Jesus stands on the shore and calls out to them, Children, do you have any fish? You shout back at him, No! <laughs> no! <laughs> so he says to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So... They cast it on the right side of the boat, and sure enough, they were not able to haul in the net because there were so many fish caught in it, 153 fish to be exact. Well, this is not the first time Peter's experienced something like this. In fact, this story told in John 21 is eerily similar 
right, to something that is told in Luke 5. This is very familiar to Peter. It harks back to the time in Peter's life when he left everything. When he left the boats, the nets, his fishing buddies, and he started to follow Jesus. This story in John 21 brings him right back to that time, right? A story told in Luke 5. And here's how that story goes. Peter had been fishing on the Sea of Galilee all night long and had come up empty. Jesus calls out to him, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Peter replies, Master, we toiled all night long and took nothing, but at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, Peter and his fishing buddies enclosed a large number of fish, so much so that the nets began to break. And when this happens, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they come over to help out. All that is to say, the events in John 21 are nearly identical with Luke 5. Same, same setting, same Sea of Galilee, same location, same scenario, same cats, right? Same cast of characters. What's interesting is what Peter does in Luke chapter 5 when this happens for the first time. You see, when he recognizes that he's in the presence of God, as these fish are essentially bringing the boat down, he doesn't say, this is awesome, do you want to go into business with me? Instead, Peter falls at Jesus' feet and says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Get away from me. Get away from me. Now, if this is how Peter felt at the beginning of his journey with Jesus, get away from me. I'm a sinner. I don't deserve to be in your presence. You scare me. If this is how Jesus relates to Peter at the beginning, how much more so does he feel this way now? If Jesus felt like a broken man at the beginning of his journey with Jesus, how much more broken does he feel now after denying him three times? If, Jesus, if, if Peter felt unworthy or undeserving to be in God's presence and to be the recipient of such good fortune back then, how much more undeserving or unworthy does he feel now in John 21? Peter said, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinner in Luke 5. And I see him doing very much the same thing here in John 21. Because when Peter's fishing, he's fishing down to his underwear, or he's maybe even naked. Here. He's stripped for work. And in the Bible, nakedness is almost always associated with shame. And that is how Peter is presented to us in the story. A failure of a fisher of men, a failure as a fisherman, stripped naked, exposed. And as soon as Peter hears John say, it is the Lord, as soon as Peter realizes that he is in God's presence, he quickly tries to cover himself up. He grabs his outer garments, throws them on, and then he throws himself into the sea. Why does he do that? Is it because he's excited to see Jesus? Or rather, is it because he's afraid to be seen? While Peter is treading water, the rest of the disciples bring the boat ashore, dragging in their catch. There is no indication from this text that Peter reaches the shore before they do. 
Right back on shore, the disciples find Jesus beside a charcoal fire. And the resurrected Jesus, right, the now incarnate Son of God, is making, he's making breakfast for his creatures he calls friends. And I absolutely love this image. And I love the image of God making breakfast for us. Like in my imagination, I wake up in my house, I put a hoodie on, I go downstairs, and it smells like coffee and bacon. And God is there over the griddle. And he looks over his shoulder with a smile and is like, ready to eat? <laughs> and we have something similar here. Jesus is huddled over a charcoal fire. He's grilling some fish. He's baking some bread. And he says with a smile over his shoulder, bring over some fish you caught. Come and eat breakfast. Peter, who's now on shore, goes to the boat and he brings over some of the fish that they caught. Now this text does not say where Peter sat for breakfast. But I imagine him sitting off on the side. And I imagine him eating his fish and bread breakfast quietly and by himself. And I imagine Jesus coming over with his plate and sliding up next to Peter, kind of nudging him in the shoulder and being like, hey, you want to talk? What the course of that conversation reveals is this. Jesus meets us in the midst of our failures. And Jesus comes to us with the purpose of restoring us. And that's the second part of this sermon. Jesus restores us. Just because you failed does not mean that you're back at square one or level one one. Don't quit. Jesus hasn't quit on you. In conversation with Peter, Jesus asks asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Does Peter love Jesus more than fish? Does Peter love Jesus more than fishing? Does Peter love Jesus more than he loves his fishing buddies? Does Peter love Jesus more than the other disciples do? We don't know what these are exactly, but Peter answers, yes, Lord, You know that I love you. Jesus says to him, feed my lambs. Jesus says to him a second time, Simon Johnson, do you love me? Peter says to him again a second time, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says to him, tend my sheep. Jesus says to him a third time, Simon Johnson, do you love me? Peter, now grieved because he's heard him say it three times, says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. Why does Jesus ask this question and ask it three times? It's not because he's hard of hearing. Okay, and it's not, as Peter knows well, because Jesus doesn't know the answer to this question. Lord, you know everything. So what gives? Why does God ask this question and ask it three times? 
here's what's happening. Jesus is meeting Peter in the midst of his failure in order to restore him. This entire conversation is Jesus' way of returning Peter to his former position. It's Jesus' way of reinstating him, of bringing him back to where he last left off. Peter denied Jesus three times by a charcoal fire. And now, around another charcoal fire, Peter has the chance to overturn every one of those denials with a reaffirmation of his love for Jesus. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? See, these questions are not so much for Jesus' sake as it is for Peter's. Peter, who heard his own voice publicly deny Jesus three times, gets to hear the same voice, his voice, utter these words out of his mouth. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Jesus meets Peter and his failure in order to restore him. And Jesus meets you in the midst of your failures in order to restore you too. Peter needs to know, and you need to know, that when you fail, it's not game over. You got angry and you lost control again. You overdrew your bank account again. Though you hate it, you keep catching yourself being proud and greedy, materialistic, a gossip, a flake. Though you hate it, you looked at porn again. You got high again. You binged again. You keep putting too much stock in what other people think about you. You keep thinking that something other than God will fully satisfy you and make you secure. You think you can, you keep thinking that you can win God's approval by your performance, and because you think, you keep thinking you can win God's approval, you keep thinking that you can lose it. You fail repeatedly to do the right thing, to say the right thing, to think the right thing. But listen, you are not playing a game of shoots and ladders. And you are not playing Super Mario Brothers on NES. You are on a journey with Jesus. Your failures do not land you back at square one or level one one. Jesus saves you, and he saves your progress. He restores you and reinstates you and returns you to where you last left off. Returns you to where you went off trail. All is not lost. So get back on track and get back in the game. Because Jesus says, I still love you. And I've got a job for you to do. So once again, come and follow me. 
Come and follow me. What makes you a Christian is not whether you are a failure or not. What makes you a Christian is what you do with your failure. The truth is you are a failure. You fail to love God with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength. And you fail to love your neighbor as yourself. You fail to keep the perfect law of God perfectly. And you will continue to do so. But what are you going to do with this failure? When we fail, the temptation is to do what Peter did. To distance ourselves from Jesus. To duck for cover. To run away. To hide. To believe that that last sin we committed was the final straw. And that Jesus is fed up with us. That we've been cut from the team. That the game is over. That all is lost. But what we see here at the end of the Gospel of John, what we see here at the end of our semester is very much what we saw at the very beginning. That when we sin, when we fail, when we screw up big time, God moves towards us. Not to crush us and not to humiliate us, not to destroy us. He moves towards us in order to restore us and to reinstate us, to get us back on track Back in a relationship with him. Back in the game. I know the Christian life is not easy. I know that there are Koopa Troopas and Bullet Bills and Piranha Plants that are out to get you. I know that you're constantly dodging hammers and ducking fire that the final boss is throwing your way. And I know... It feels like, try as you will, you keep running into walls. I know. I know you make mistakes. I know you slip up and you screw up and you fail. And I know you do because I do too. Right? And I do this a lot. But don't quit. Don't quit because in spite of all your failures, you're not going back to level 1-1. Don't quit because even though you're not good enough to beat the final boss, Jesus is, and he has. He's your champion. Ultimately, the reason not to quit is this. It's in spite of all of your failures, Jesus hasn't quit, and Jesus will not quit on you. Jesus meets you in your failure. He moves towards you in order to restore you, to bring you back to where you last left off. He has saved your progress, and he has saved, is saving, and will save you still. So get back on track. Get back in the game. And follow him. Let's pray.